Welcome to Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. We have a really depressing topic today. <laughs> it's, uh, it's upsetting. No, it not really in any way. It's super, down. super duper exciting. You know, it's my favorite wine region. Favorite. I, I, and I'm saying it obviously really facetiously. Champagne. Of course, of course. It's so fun. We wanted to talk about champagne. or not. The food that goes with champagne. Mm-hmm. Later in the program, we'll have an interview with uh, the director of wine education at Moet Hennessy, uh, who has a really interesting background and can give us some extra history. That would be great. I can't wait to talk to him. And in the third segment, of course, you're going down on the Chef's Challenge. I seriously doubt that, Tony, but we'll see. Because you never, ever think about making food for champagne. Ah. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny because when you think of champagne, well, and when I think, I think of champagne, I think it goes with everything. Pretty much, or a lot of food. So, uh huh. The it's funny. Champagne. <laughs> what what, the, what are the images that you have in your head of champagne? First ones. Well, that you, have? you don't want to ask me that because of course I do. I love champagne and I drink it frequently. And Most when I am drinking, about, I mean, yeah, they, they think uh, about the bow of the ship. You know, the champagne oh, bottle being smashed across the bow of the ship to what to a waste. christen it. To, what it a is, waste of good yeah. champagne. Mm, that's what think I think when you say that. Like it's the last game of the World Series and somebody's won. And, <laughs> or, or and all of these guys, race. all these sweaty guys are getting squirted with bottles of champagne. Mm-hmm. At the end of the car race, yeah. Right. The, the Indianapolis 500. Right. Right. I, I think of all the trips that have been fortunate to go on there. And they haven't been, they actually haven't been many, but they've spanned the last 22 years. And uh, it's it's a beautiful region. And, and now that I've learned a lot more about it, because we're studying it um, with the waiters at the restaurant right now pretty heavily, um, one of the things I didn't realize about Champagne, it is one of the coldest wine-growing regions in the world. Well, yeah, it's on the edge, with of, the on the, on the being, edge of where you can cultivate. Yeah, which is, is amazing. And I think the more I learn about Champagne, the more I realize why I like it so much, because I am an inherently just cold-weather person. I love cold weather. I love cold-weather food. I, I love everything about it. And so it makes sense that that's, that's, my, that's my wine. So um, your next restaurant is going to be in Norway? N- probably not. Just a question. Maybe in Champagne, though. Now, that might be fun. I think the thing that people also that think of Champagne as being this, uh, as like bright and fabulous. And mm-hmm. when you think about how difficult it is to cultivate there. Exactly. And the, the struggle you have to go through just to get reasonable ripeness to make the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, that makes me immediately think of any wine from further north. It's going to have cooler nights. It's going to have better acidity, meaning higher acidity. Which is that important balance point that makes champagne flexible for so much food. That's that's one thing that automatically happens too. It's funny. I heard an interesting reference one time um, about champagne in the area with the worst weather in the winemaking world. Hmm. I mean, it's gray so much of the year. Sure. Even in midsummer, it's gray a lot of the time and and not particularly warm. It's the the wine comes with its own starlight because you sure can't see the sun the whole time. That you're there. I like that. Well, yeah, and I was reading, you know, three words, finesse, delicacy, and lightness. I think that's just 
a nice quick way of thinking about champagne. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing that, as you say, it's hard to hard to grow, hard to make. It's not an easy wine. It has to go through a second fermentation and all these things. You know, you have to have a special bottle to make it. You have to have a special corking process. And there's so many steps to it. Uh, the riddling process, all these things that have to be done to produce champagne. I, I think, think it's I think it's fascinating that. I think champagne is is more difficult to assess than just finesse, or literally fineness, uh, delicacy, and lightness. I mean, there's always going to be lift to it inherently because it's a sparkling wine. I mean, it's the original sparkling wine, and it's done under great pressure. And because of that great pressure, it, it's going to have that 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 intense effervescence that plays like acidity on your palate too. So that I think when I think delicacy, lightness, finesse, it also makes me think of uh, presence. I mean, the wine always has great presence, whether it's mineral presence or, or having that, um, that, that brightness that, that, that occupies your palate. The second thing it makes me think of is, is richness, because there's a voluminousness to sparkling wines, especially ones that are very finely sparkling. And some of the houses in particular uh, some of the some of the more old some of the classical big-bodied wines like Bollinger or Krug, uh, those guys make beefier, honestly, beefier champagne that easily can carry off uh, a lamb dish or carry off a duck or or something that is richer. You're not you're not in a seafood region, even though you, we think of champagne often as a match for seafood and raw seafood and this kind of thing. I think that's because of the laser sharp acidity that it has and the brightness that's there. But the wines with bigger presence, bigger vintage-dated wines, they carry off lots of things. Well, when you have a, a, a region where a lot of hunting is done, you know, they eat a lot of venison, wild boar, um, you don't, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's, yeah, game it's what intensity. we think about is not what's, uh, you know, being eaten in this region. So it's it's uh, it shows you that it really can go with a lot of different types of food, not just what we may think in, initially. What also reminds you that Champagne has done a better job in marketing itself and branding itself than... They have worked hard and, at it for and, many hundreds of years, actually. I think pretty much from the Franco-Prussian War on, you know, you have you have wars. It was like every twenty-five years. It's amazing what that the, ground is, and the people and the culture have gone through. I mean, from you know, from from our civil war until now, they had three major wars that mm-hmm. literally dragged back and forth across wow. the region. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, it was kind of like the epicenter of the the religious conflict between the you know you th- you think of Protestants and Catholics, but I mean, they're still both in the region, and just like in Alsace, and you and there are many, many Catholic, but originally German families that live in the area. Hence the names of some of the houses: Heidsick, Bollinger, Krug. Uh, you know, that's that, that's not that surprising. Then, and you have some Protestant French that are in that area too. It's just, it's an interesting, mm. interesting mix. And I think that that where, where cultures come together, often you have the most competitiveness. And in that region, I think a lot of that competitiveness became competitiveness about business. And the business of that region is wine. And the wine became popular and amplified its popularity by being what was popular with uh, with royalty, with the fanciest of the fancy in Europe, you know, 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, 
the, the, the branding and the, you know, all of the ideas of, it's funny, think about all the advertisements you've ever seen for any alcohol or any luxury good. It all begins with champagne branding and champagne advertising from, you know, mm-hmm. 1860s, 70s, 80s until now. I mean, that's, that's something that they, they build into their programs. They've been smart about it. One of the things that, um, you, if you could talk about a little bit, is the distinction where it used to be that uh, the growers sent predominantly all the grapes went to just the major houses, and or they were processed. You know, in other words, you grew your own grapes, but you didn't make your own wine, and and that's begun to change, right? Over well, yeah, there was a, there was a tradition for a long, long time of of the major houses, the people that basically have good technology to make the wine receiving all the grapes and or receiving bits and pieces of wine from different growers that they contracted with or that contracted to work ground that they, you know, farms that they had. Uh, and then all the wine coming into us, one central place. One theory was that the you know, a, a lot of the winemaking came out of the church. So a lot of the people who experienced making decisions were people who essentially received grapes as a tithe. So there's a certain amount of, built into the culture, there's a certain amount of, um, that's just how we do it. There's, you know, here's Monsignor so-and-so, and he's the best winemaker in this village. And so this is how everyone tithes. And then <laughs> at some point, you, know, that you get used to, you, that you just get used to giving the grapes. Well, I think at some point it turned into business that did that. And I don't have the, the information in front of me, but... It, it turned into business doing that, and one family got better at it than some others and or had better facilities to do this than some others. And so big houses uh, like Moet or Gosset is a very old one. Gosset is from the 1580s. <laughs> and, uh, and But some houses still o- only grow their own. Some used to have uh, contracts with others, and now they only grow their own. Uh, but a lot of the big brand names that we know, um, Pommery, Moet um, Chandon, Vuclico, they're all producers that, that, that contract a lot of grapes coming to them. They grow a certain amount, a large amount, but they contract a lot of, a lot of fruit coming to them and wine coming to them. The big thing that's happened recently, and probably in the last generation of winemakers, so probably mostly our age and younger, are some of the small growers that do individual projects. And I think uh, Jacques Salos is a guy who was one of the guys that kind of got that started, said, nah, I'm just going to make stuff differently from what other people have in the past. And they do it with respect for other traditions, but there's no question that's, that, that, that's kind of the attitude. So you see that happening with a lot of small growers, whether it's Vuforni or Salos or Guy Lamandier. Uh, small growers have kind of like been sleepy and maybe sold only in France for a long time and then eventually... You know, they've started to export, and one champion of getting small grower champagne into the U.S. is Terry Thies. Uh, and he's done a very good job of talking people into, like, give me some of your wine to sell. So it's not just being sold in the region or in, in restaurants in France or a little bit in other places in the EU. That's been an interesting trend. It, just as a last piece of sort of follow-up on that, it, I was looking at my original version of the World Atlas of Wine, Um from Hugh Johnson, which is a very helpful book. And every iteration over the years, there's slight changes in the text. And it's kind of, obviously, and, and, and a co-author came on board as well. But in the original iteration, 
it talked about how the bigger houses had such a giant advantage over the small growers because the the cuvee, the blending, was the whole point of that. That was how you made quality in the wine, and that was how the wines were going to be complex and interesting. And while yes, that is true, that does not mean that buying from 750 growers is going to make your wine inherently better than having wine from six different plots on your farm mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> or six different sites within Champagne. And that just it was interesting to hear. Like obviously that was the party line at the time. That that Hugh was like, okay, this is what this is what you do. That's why these, you know, these guys are doing a better job. So I think, I think that the cuvee is where quality happens. Individual sites make very interesting wines, but they don't always make the most complex wines. They don't always make the most balanced wines, or the most complex expressions of champagne, um, in, in, as far as the mineral components and and different layers of flavors. But. Uh, yeah, I think that that whole attitude has changed a lot. I think that's one of the interesting things about Bicard Samo is that they actually put their wine in barrel by vineyard site rather than by varietal, and and it's just so interesting to well, see how do, each although, different house handles their product. Well, largely, largely each site they learn what grape grows best in that site. One thing people have a hard time with with Champagne, I think sometimes now's the time of the year you're walking into a retail store. And you go to look at labels and you see sparkling wines and you wonder why this wine that you think is champagne, well, champagne means it's from the region of champagne. And in general, it's probably going to start somewhere in the 30s price-wise, 30s, 40s for non-vintage champagne. And non-vintage is an important thing to know. Being on that edge of the growing region, uh, northernmost, every year is not a great year. Every year has different characteristics. Usually there's a blend of different years that make up that that individual bottling that gives you a consistent, relatively consistent product under a particular label. So that's the idea. If it's a non-vintage champagne, they literally try to make it be the same each year? They as try to blend cl- it so it's always it, yeah. the same. That's. I mean, I had no understanding of that until recently. I, I, I just assumed that, like every other wine, that this is the harvest from this year, and we're just this is what we're producing. I didn't no. realize they were literally trying to produce the exact same. You should expect, like with Paul Roger, you should expect something that's light to medium body. Style of that house. Uh, not that mm-hmm. dense. A pretty fine, a pretty dry product. A little more Chardonnay driven than Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier driven. Um, a little nutty. That seems to be one of the characteristics that always comes through with those wines. Not terrifically yeasty or citrusy. Hmm. And uh, and very clean finishing, that very talky finish that you hope for in some So then my question champagnes. is, when, when they go to produce the vintage wine, do they still strive to keep their house style or do they, which I'm sure they do, but I mean, or do they really let but, it be but itself? The, they're trying to express the year. That the, year. The point, okay. the so point it of a vintage be, wine is expressing the year. Yeah. So it gets, the vintages are all going to be different, feeling, well, every, tasting, whatever. Every, from, every year wouldn't be bottled on its own either. They should be very different. Right. Got 2002 so cool. and 2003 are gigantically different. Well, and I don't know if people understand that champagne is a fortified wine. I mean, I, I never really thought about that either until, I mean, I know it's different from very, port. Very slightly. But, but very yeah. slightly, technically, it is port- fortified because of the the champagne or mark the, that they the, put the, in the with dosage the dosage. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that also helps make it consistent. There's a Each house has a little almost like cocktail that it finishes the wine with. I don't want to get into the entire winemaking process because that's a very easy thing to look up online for a listener. But... Uh, 
yeah, that's something that that makes a big difference. Each individual house kind of has their, uh, you know, Coca-Cola has its recipe, and uh, Moët de Chandon has its recipe. That's, <laughs> you know, not to demean either. Okay. Yeah, they they have a particular be, besides all the wine that comes in from all the sites, they have this little this little cocktail that the that the product gets finished with, and it makes it more and more itself its flavor. When we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, we'll have uh, Rich Buchanan from Moët de Hennessy. He's the director of education to talk about champagne and the history of uh, their house and houses and a few recipes after that from Chef Cindy Wolf, things she likes to eat with champagne. And then she's already sweating the chef's challenge to come <laughs> in the third segment. All of that and more on WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And with us we have, uh, we're lucky to have, Rich Buchanan, who's the, what, your formal title is the wine educator or the chief educator for Moet Hennessy? I like all those things. Uh, <laughs> you're, the, you're, the, you're the chief? <laughs> Someone jokingly referred to me as the uh, minister of information. There you that go. That's pretty good, too. That's, that's pretty exciting. That's yeah. a, that's a I little have dinner terrifying, with, actually. I want to have dinner with you. <laughs> I want to hear. I want to learn everything. <laughs> it, it is a, kind of an amazing job. I mean, I, I get to cover not just champagne, but our wine portfolio and, and spirits and uh, great. travel the country. It's great. That sounds, sounds brutal. Yeah. Sounds brutal. And, and you don't have an exotic French accent. I don't. I don't. I have a, what is I that have, about? I have, a, uh, I have 20 years in New York City and then growing up in North Carolina. So hmm. Where in North Carolina? Uh, in Asheville. Ah, beautiful. Okay. Yeah, lovely town. Okay. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So one of the things that has always fascinated me is the exactly, I, I always maintain the theory that, that champagne marketing has taught a lot of the world how to market over the years. And uh and the houses that you work with have been some of the best at it over the years. Do you have a sense of the the genesis of that with Moet? I, I think with like Moet and Chandon, what is interesting is you know initially you know when this house was founded in 1743, their first customers were um, royalty. It was the royal courts around Europe, and I kind of love how. The kind of the first customers kind of cemented this kind of tradition of you know royalty and celebration and luxury uh, right from the get go. Um, so work work just like People Magazine works for us. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, the, Claude Moet, who was uh, the founder, just he, my understanding, he was a wonderful salesperson. He had kind of amazing kind of connections and networking. Um, throughout the throughout Europe, and I always I'm fascinated by this too because in the 1700s, in terms of you know getting product out and getting it into the royal courts around Europe, this was before we had trucks and and trains and, and boats um, or container ships, if you will, and so it was really being done you know by horseback and carriage, which is amazing when you look at the the various countries that they were able to get their champagne to. Yeah, I happened to stop by with my wagon, and I have these. Uh <laughs> How many cases of champagne for you? Well, I mean, somewhat related, there was a wonderful story about the House of Renar when they came into the United States. Instead of uh, going through a supplier or going through an importer or a restaurant or a hotel, 
they actually went, one of the members of the Renard family went to the White House and basically knocked on the door and presented the, you know, the, the wines to the President of the United States. And, uh, you know, we know that was a pretty good, you know, quote-unquote sales call because a month later they had orders from, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue for their wine. So it's a fascinating, the history of these houses is just fascinating. The, the, the growth of, of champagne, say, in our lifetime, has been more in what parts of the world? Um, you know, the United States has seen uh, quite a bit of, of growth. I think a lot of people have looked to Asia, especially China, because we've seen such huge growth with Bordeaux and Cognac mm-hmm. there. Uh, champagne's been kind of flat, honestly, um, in a lot of parts of Asia, um, which I'm fine with, because that means <laughs> if they start drinking more champagne, that means less champagne for me. Um, but we've seen a lot of growth in the United States. Uh, the UK is kind of the largest market outside of France. Um, so it's still a kind of a fairly kind of traditional, um, you know, European uh, product and, and, and North America as well. I, I find it interesting that in the, the, the U.S., I think there's been something of a food explosion and food awareness and food interest. And it's, there's so much, uh, so many different kinds of cooking being done both sort of authentically and being fused together, and champagne being maybe the most flexible thing that you can consume with so many different things, I would expect just by, for, for me, I always trust that the public has actually a pretty good palate. They figure out what's tasty. It, it's, it seems to me that champagne is well poised to take advantage of that, you know, that, that, that need for that very balanced product that can deal with a lot of different kinds of cuisine. Is that something that, that you guys have seen? You know, I, I still think it's a bit of a struggle. I mean, I, I think in the larger markets you see that, in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. And, um, but I, I still will do these wine dinners where people are shocked that we're pairing champagne with food. Um, <laughs> so from my point of view, it's, it's getting I've, – I've been in this business for 14 years, and it's getting better, but – um, it's still, I think the average person does not think about, you know, champagne and, and, and food together, which is, to me, frustrating because, like you said, it is amazing. Champagne makes uh, me hungry. That's what... <laughs> exactly. That nice, that high acidity makes your mouth water. makes eating enjoyable. And, and you're right, it pairing, uh, it pairs so well with so many different foods. So it, it's still a bit of a struggle, I think, in, in certain areas of the country, though. Do you have a, a short list of some favorite... Uh, Traditional pairings, and then a couple of completely off what what people might think of as off the wall pairings that do really well for you with specific different champagnes. Um, I, I think um, I'm a big fan of um, Olivier Krug uh, from the House of Krug. Always says his favorite pairing is uh, Krug Champagne or, or Champagne with uh, a really good aged Parmesan cheese, which I agree with. It's got that saltiness and that kind of that kind of round, almost nuttiness to that cheese. Um, additionally, I think sushi is, is, to me personally, the pinnacle, I think, of, of food and wine pairings, especially with champagne. Um, I always say that, you know, you know, champagne is the sushi of wine. Sushi is the champagne of food in terms of the craftsmanship and the artistry that goes into making, making sushi and then also making champagne. Um, but also... Anything, I have a, a weakness for anything with saltiness with champagne. So fried chicken and roast chicken are both 
uh, two of my favorite things. Yeah, fried chicken and champagne seems to be a thing right now. It does. Here in New York, we have a restaurant called Birds and Bubbles, uh, which is a kind of, of a... Of course champ- you do. <laughs> yeah, champagne and fried chicken kind of themed restaurant. And, and we need more of those. We need people to think more about champagne. Um, but roast chicken as well and, and duck, Peking duck, it's kind of amazing. Um, you know, and, and anything, you know, popcorn and potato chips are two great things. And, and a couple years ago, we did a, a pairing uh, an event with a, a hot dog restaurant here in New York City that does kind of fancy hot dogs. And it was a hot dog and champagne pairing. And especially the rosés did so well because hot dogs have that saltiness to them. And once again, that high acidity, I think, loves the saltiness. And in addition, there was you know, foie gras and things on these hot dogs as well. So. I, I will admit being a sucker for like hot popcorn with, with uh, shaved parmigiano yeah. on it with uh, cold champagne. Probably when I've had too many glasses of cold champagne already. Sure, sure. <laughs> that seems like a really important connection at that point in time. Can we hear some about the history of the house? Sure. Um, with Moet and Chandon, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that I think the interesting thing was the that particular house was was founded and quickly became the favorite of uh, the various royal courts around Europe. And in a way, you know, this is your your celebrity endorsement, if you will. If you have the king of your country um, drinking this particular wine then, uh, you know, it really kind of sets a precedent uh, there. The, the 1800s in the Champagne region were huge, kind of across the boards, and you see a ton of growth. I mean, it has a lot to do with the fact that technology got better, the wines got better and better, um, and then transportation, of course, made it easier. And then you started seeing these houses shipping uh, product around the world. Um, and a house like Moet or a house like Vauvclicot as well, they were, you know, especially Vauvclicot, I feel like they were trying to basically hit every corner of the world with their wine. Um, and so it's this kind of amaz- amazing expansion um, of these markets uh, in the 1800s. Um, the, you know, the, the issue, of course, uh, in the late 1800s and then on through into the 1900s uh, for Champagne, and I think also especially with Cognac as well, was the fact that we had phylloxera come in uh, and destroy all these vineyards, you know, this little louse that came from North America and basically almost destroyed, you know, every single vineyard in in Europe. You have the Great Depression, you have um, prohibition in the United States, which was was a major thing for a lot of these houses because the United States was a large market. And then you have two world wars. And if you look at a map, you'll see that the Champagne region is pretty close to the German border. And so the Germans came through and started stomping around and blowing things up pretty early uh, during both wars. And I'm a huge fan. There's a book called, the, uh, called Wine and War, and it's about the Second World War in terms of um, Champagne and Burgundy and Bordeaux and, and Cognac and how they dealt with the Germans. And it's a pretty amazing story. And especially in, in Champagne, these houses, in some cases, were devastated. I mentioned the house of Renard. Renard was, you know, this, this is the oldest house in the Champagne region. And after the war was over, they had nothing. The Germans basically took everything. You know, you go visit these Champagne houses. I think at Moet, I think the oldest bottle is 1893, I think it is. Don't quote me on that. Um, 
But the oldest house, the oldest bottle at Renard is in the 50s because they had nothing. The Germans basically wiped out everything. And um, so the 1900s were, um, you, you saw a lot of expansion in certain ways, but also, I mean, some devastation uh, from two world wars and prohibition and phylloxera and all that stuff. Um, the history, I think, of these houses is fascinating, though. When you're founded in the 1700s, you, know, you have a lot of time to figure out how to make these wines. I always, I always say, like with Moet and Chandon, you know, founded in 1743, after 100 years, they probably figured out how to make champagne really well. And so everything since then has been fine-tuning. Um, and so the amount of history and, and knowledge that these houses have is, is really incredible. With Moet, the growth of the business, at, at what point did it start to change and a lot of the houses became uh, sort of amalgam under, you know, under uh, the Moet Hennessy umbrella? That's, um, and, and I'm shocked that I don't remember the exact dates there, but uh, that kind of started happening in the 50s and the 60s, and it started with uh, Moet and Chandon and, and Hennessy Cognac becoming partners. And when you look at both those regions and both those businesses, it makes perfect sense. They're super regulated. I mean, Cognac is the most regulated spirit in the world, and, and Champagne is easily the most regulated wine uh, region in the world. Um, actually, I think it's more regulated than any other spirit. And so you have these two regions, highly regulated. They both um, you know, deal with growers, traditionally. Both cognac and champagne tend to be um, houses that are buying um, fruit from, from small growers, and it's a very fragmented business. Um, and then they both tend to be products that have a lot of time spent aging. There's you know, a lot of patience involved, if you will. And so it made sense that these two houses would... Um, we get together. Uh, the House of Renard joined uh, Moet Hennessy uh, a little bit later, um, and then Vufflico, I believe in the, it was in the late 90s. And, um, and I think what's interesting with, I can't speak to the, the other houses in, in the Champagne region, but at least the ones within Moet Hennessy, the fascinating thing is that they are still very, very independent, and they don't, um, you know, they honestly compete with each other, and um, yeah, having visited everybody over the years, it's no, no question that they're their own, and they're, they're chasing their own flavor. They're chasing their own exa- yeah. mission. Yeah, it, it's a it's a fascinating kind of business. Even though they're they should be you know siblings, if you will, they you know, <laughs> they're siblings that still punch each other when their mom turns around. I guess, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it is, like I said, it's a very fascinating business uh, that we're in here. And so for you, uh, I, I like to ask people who are in the wine business, what was your epiphany wine? And did you have an epiphany champagne? Um, I, I think my uh, wine may have actually been um, champagne, if I think, when I really think about it. Um, and it, it, it's hard to say. It's, it's for me, uh, Krug... Uh, Grand Cuvée has been one of these wines that has this real kind of emotional connection and, and is the wine that is my go-to wine for anniversaries or birthdays or special occasions or, 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 or you know, job promotions, whatever it might be. And, um, and it's a wine that uh, is my desert island wine easily. But I have to remember... <laughs> Ch- um, Champagne is an easy desert island wine for exactly, sure. Exactly, yeah. It, it requires no uh, you know, wine opener, which is nice if you're on a desert island. <laughs> um, but also I, I remember 
Dome Perignon um, used to make a wine called Inatex, um, mm-hmm. which was the latest Gorge wine, and they've since they still make it, but it's under a different name. And I remember the first time having that wine, and and it was a it was one of those few times where the product, you know, the wine kind of lives up to the hype. And, and I think we can probably all agree that very often you taste some of these wines and you know these first growth Bordeaux or Burgundies, whatever it might be, and they're good, but they're not kind of life changing. And I remember that first time tasting the Dom Perignon Inatec and, and just thinking like, oh my God, like this is, my whole brain has kind of shifted um, as to what champagne can be. So I guess I'm very champagne-centric, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's, I will admit that on my list of wines that have had an epiphany kind of effect on me, I think four of six are champagne. Yeah, yeah. yeah that 73 Dom Perignon and 1970 uh, Ballon and uh, and the Salon 76 are all things that just... The first time I had Salon 76 was from uh, uh, Jeroboam, too, so just uh, not that long ago. Just if fantastic. We, if we can get people to realize how good those large formats are for champagne, you know, people who buy champagne and they want to keep it, I'm always like, buy these larger formats. Buy magnums at least, yeah. Buy magnums at least, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on with us, Rich. Excellent. Great. It was My nice pleasure. to talk with Great you. To thank you. With you. Us. you too. Take care. Thank Bye. you. When we come back on Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine, and we'll do a few recipes from Chef Cindy Wolf. I think she's got a question or two for me, and then the always dangerous Chef's Challenge <laughs> on Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine on WYPR. Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. So, Tony, uh, just one of the aspects of buying and drinking champagne is understanding the label. Um, so, you know, vintage, non-vintage, cuvee, can you just explain some of these things and what, what they mean? And and Yeah, just simply vintage means it's a, the wine from one particular year. And as we talked about, it's champagne is so far north that it's on the edge of winemaking, it's going to be very different year to year. So this learning learning the particularities of the year is important. And all the growers get together to claim a vintage year? Or, how does, no, or can you do no, it individually? you can do it individually. It goes and by house? Okay. So it's not pe- like port. Yeah, many people didn't make a 2003, for example, ah, because it was okay. so extremely warm. Okay, all right. And very few made uh, a 1994, for example. So cuvee, what does... Cuvee is just a blend. Mm-hmm. So champagne almost always is a blend. Of sites of grapes, mm-hmm. okay. of, you know, of Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay are the three grapes. Two black grapes, one white. You know, you'll also see on labels Blanc de Blanc and Blanc de Noir. Blanc de Blanc means it's all Chardonnay because it's the only white grape. And Blanc de Noir, literally white from blacks, is the wine made from the red grapes, Pinot Meunier and Pinot Noir, and with, the, with just with the skins removed. Okay, and Cremant? Cremant is, uh, you don't see that too much in Champagne. That's less sparkling than Champagne proper. Uh, it's usually about half the pressure. You see that many other places in France that are making sparkling wine, like Alsace or in the Jura, for example. Okay, Rosé? Rosé uh, is yeah, inherently pink, and mm-hmm. boy, is that popular these days. Oh, yeah. And uh, usually the, there's red wine added to make the color. It actually adds a little bit of tannin as well. So sometimes those wines are a little bit sweeter in the dosage so that 
the you know the balances out with a little bit of tannin. They can have a bit more body then for food. Reserve. Reserve means anything. There's no regulation. So anyone can put any kind of reserve on the label. Okay. All right. It's reserved for drinking now. Um, (laughs) And the distinctions, brut, ultra brut, demi-sec, sec, de. Um, Brut just means it's dry. Okay. And it's still there is some sugar there. Not too much. Less than 2%. Usually less than 1%. Ultra brut means, or you'll see zero dosage, meaning there's no sugar at the end on that guy. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's pretty strict. Okay. I don't. Not everyone's going to like that wine that much. That is that is extremely dry. Okay. And, and extra, extra dry is the one that for your your friends who want it to be a little bit sweeter. That maybe they're prosecco fans and you want to get them introduced to champagne proper. Mm-hmm. Um, they like things a little bit sweeter. That the extra dry is a good option for that. And the d- difference between Grand Cru and Premier Cru. It's the, the, literally the quality of the sites. So you can only name something Grand Cru if it's only fruit going into the wine coming from Grand Cru sites. And there's certain villages that are the Grand Cru villages. The vineyards around those villages are the best sites, like Bouzy or Ambonnet or uh, Menil or uh, Chouy. That's, that's so interesting. And there are 20-some-odd sites. Aren't there a lot of... Um, there are a lot of villages. There are yeah. a lot more villages. It's so interesting, and they'll, the region. They'll, they'll get kind of ranked between... The Premier Cruise are all ranked 90 to 99 uh, Eschel, without getting into to, to what Eschel means. But it, literally, it's ranking from 90 up... 100 is Grand Cru. And the, the Grand Cru's get 100% of the price for the year. And then each other village gets the price where the, where the site ranks. Could be 94, could be 96, could be 91. So the Prima Cruz have a lot of variability in their quality. The Grand Cru's are all the superior sites. So it's nice to have something all from Grand Cru fruit. So w- when we've visited the Champagne region and been down in the cellars, it's literally, literally carved out of chalk, right? So yeah, it's, I, it, it, it's kind of amazing in that. There's an incredible amount of chalk in the soil. That's why the Romans built the Crier, these giant sort of like uh, inverted pyramids in the earth. They, they carved them out. The caves at uh, Tatinje are, I think, the most amazing. So we keep talking about champagne. That, of course, makes me want champagne. Mm-hmm. We talked about all the basics of champagne, some of the history of champagne. I like drinking champagne, which inherently means you need to eat something with it. So what? what well, what's, since, a, what's a great snack? What's since a great dish for it? A great snack? Well, um, pate can be amazing with, you know, if you wanted to make a, a pork-based pate, um, and put a little bit of boar or uh, even rabbit or pheasant in as a garnish, interior garnish. Maybe serve it with. Um, I'm gonna go out in the garden and shoot a pheasant. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and that can be. I think that would be beautiful with a rosé. But um, I, I think for me, if you're going to talk about food from that region, we should talk about actually cooking with the wine because that's how I think. Um, I love. I love the opportunity to cook with with wine that is is amazing is amazing the way that it tastes. I don't mean to cook with an expensive wine, but to cook with the wine from the region, which to cook a spent chicken or an old bird um, or a brand new, wonderful <laughs> young chicken, <laughs> which is more readily available to us. Um, but chicken cooked with champagne, coco champagne, um, uh, I think would be um, really, really amazing way to cook a bird. So if you were to do light mirepoix, only white mirepoix, so leeks, um, shallots, 
onion, uh, maybe a touch of garlic, but very, very little. And really keep the whole, use a white chicken stock. So not a stock where the bones were browned, but, you know, a white white stock or white broth that has tremendous flavor and use champagne in that cooking process, which will obviously give a level of acidity to the dish. And So, um, so braising it? Yeah. So braising the chicken um, and uh, maybe having a little bit of bay leaf in and um, maybe just allowing the champagne to be almost the uh, uh, seasoning. In other words, not to add any other spices or herbs, um, n- allowing it to shine, but um, cooking, a, a slow cooking a, a bird that way, particularly a, a chicken. And also the idea of having squab um, with red currants and a rosé champagne. I just love that idea with a good dark reduction sauce um, from uh, roasted bones and, you know, having a little sweet onion and, and carrots and maybe a little bit of wild mushrooms um, if you had porcinis or morels or something like that and having that with a, a an older rosé just, I mean, I, I would love love the idea of that. It so. sounds pretty marvelous. Now you're in trouble because now we're going to have to start the chef's challenge. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Here you, go, Here you go, Tony. Why you do you go want first. me to go first? You go first. It's no, good for you. It's not. Right. No, geez. Okay. I don't like the list when you cross out half the things. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's too easy. It's too. Oh, well, that's this is nice. Give me girolles. I love girolles. And little tiny mushrooms, a lot like chanterelles. Foie gras, pork shoulder, wild boar, girolles, garlic, onion, shallot, citrus, walnut, button mushrooms, sun chokes, artichokes, all the chokes. Trying to choke me. Niswa's olives, extra virgin olive oil, WG, oh, whole grain mustard. I'm like, this is WG guy. Brioche. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it, it does desperately want me to make a pate. There's no question. It's kind of like a pate and a big old root vegetable gratin or something and and uh, pop open a bottle of, of Cru Grand Cuvée, like Rich says. and mm-hmm. You know? Open a book and don't talk to anybody. <laughs> All right. Mm, the foie gras, the pork shoulder, the wild boar. You're going to have to clean them up and get everything small cubes so that you can grind these guys. And you're going to want to uh, uh, sweat very, very gently the the garlic, the shallot, the onion. I mean, heavy-duty pan, very, very low heat. Just, just enough to get the uh, just a little mince of those guys. You don't want to take on any color just to, to sweeten them up a little bit. I don't want to poach them for this. And uh, the Girol, I want the Girol in there as well. Uh, let's get the Girol roasted a long while, low heat, get them crispy and a little bit of butter. And then all of these things are going to be ground into uh, the force meat for the the tahine. Maybe reserve a few pretty Girol for a garnish on a plate. Uh, the walnut to make a nice garnish as well. Make an interior garnish down the center of the of the, uh, of the pate, down the center of the tree mold when you lay it in there. I don't want any bacon to wrap it with, but I really don't think it probably needs that. You've got a lot of good stuff in there. That's Yeah, that was a nice little gift. Thank you. So that leaves me sunchokes, artichokes, uh, brioche to make toast with. That's nice. I still have the, some of those uh, crispy giroles as garnish, as well as olives as garnish. So sunchokes, artichokes. So I'm going to just slice those guys very thin. Artichokes, I'm assuming it's the bottoms. Slice those guys very thin. And uh, with the extra version, have reserved a little bit of garlic and lay these guys in a gratin dish and work that 
in a very low oven for a very long time. Essentially melt them. Actually, you kind of melt them and then serve them on the toasts. That, that might be very fun to have with uh, mm-hmm. yeah, a little warm toast with the Truslam artichoke and the artichoke with the with the pate and that glass of Krug with the little olives and the walnuts and the jirol mushrooms to eat with. Yeah, and a little whole grain mustard. That's nice. It's a good picnic. It's too cold for a picnic, but <laughs> it's Inside that's picnic. a nice little picnic, yeah. Maybe I'll save it for the Army-Navy football game or something. There you go. That That's was reasonable. easy. Yeah, that was an unusual but very <laughs> pleasant challenge. This this is yeah, good luck in left field because that's where this lives. Okay. Heads on shrimp, persimmons, 24-month prosciutto di parma, chestnuts, spinach, cauliflower, fresh corn, poblano peppers, lamb shoulder, juniper, sweet potatoes. Lamb shoulder. Lamb shoulder. This is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, gonna take the, going to take the juniper berries and crush them in the mortar and pestle, uh, mix them with olive oil, salt, and pepper, and rub that on the lamb shoulder, but very lightly because the juniper is very, very strong, um, and marinate it for 24 hours mm. in the refrigerator and then roast it. And, and I will probably remove most of that juniper before I put it in the oven. Um, it will have done its job when it was marinating. Uh, near the end of the cooking process, I would add the sweet potatoes to the pan and the poblano peppers. And um, actually, I'm going to add that. No, I'm not. All right, so I'm going to add that to the pan and let that work with the lamb shoulder. Uh, Most of the lamb shoulder with sweet potatoes and poblano sounds awfully good. Right, so now I need a soup. So I'm going to make chestnut soup. And when I go to make the chestnut, I'm going to add the persimmons to it. So it's going to be a persimmon and chestnut soup with um, uh, just a little bit of the prosciutto in it, just just some of the bits and pieces so that um, <clears throat> nothing nice um, on the ham. But um, because it's such a beautiful piece of meat, it really just deserves to be thinly sliced and and laid out um, as an antipasta. Um, and uh, anyway, so making the soup with the chestnuts and the persimmons, um, letting that all work together with a little bit of onion product and cream, touch of cream, a little bit of stock, salt and pepper. Once it works, puree it and strain it and adjust its consistency. I'll roast the corn and saute the shrimp with the corn. Um, I'll thinly slice the prosciutto, lay it out um, uh, at the top of a plate. Saute the head on shrimp, deglaze with a little bit of, I'm just assuming I have certain things that aren't on this list, a little bit of shrimp stock that I make from the heads. Mm -hmm. I can take a few shrimp um, and actually uh, take the heads off, run them with water. Um, uh, That's a beautiful thing about about making shrimp stock. All you need are the shells and the heads, and you can have a really nice stock. So I'll uh, take a few of the heads off to do that. So saute the head on shrimp and and a little bit of corn oil. Add the fresh ro- corn, which actually would have been roasted in the oven, that corn, cut off the cob. Um, add that at the end, deglaze with the stock, add a little bit of cold butter, and just do the shrimp and the <clears throat> corn together and have thin slices of the prosciutto laid at the top of the plate, um, almost as a little snack to go with it, maybe even curled up a little bit up into the air. Um, so yeah, that why would you really take like, a nice slice of prosciutto and wrap it around some of the shrimp and corn? That sounds good. Mm-hmm. And um, the only thing I've missed here is spinach. And have to eat your vegetables. Yeah, I would just uh, have it as a side dish. And I think a, a little bit of sp- – I'm honestly, since I have this prosciutto and I know I'm going to have a little scrappy pieces, I could do it just a little julienne of um, prosciutto as well, just tossed in with the spinach at the end, saute it in butter with a little bit of salt and freshly ground pepper. Um, and I would probably chiffonade that spinach as well. well. There you go. Good. 
Yeah, I like the, the, the combination on the lamb and the sweet potato and the poblano peppers. That sounds quite good. I already did not give you a very champagne-oriented list. Hmm, right. I think that'll be that'll be a tough menu for champagne. Yeah, okay. Although the chestnut and persimmon soup. That might be fun that might with be champagne. Fine, yeah. Okay. Anyway, I think that's all we have time for on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. If you want to follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media. You can follow me on Instagram at Chef Wolf and on Twitter at Chef Cindy Wolf. Or you can follow me at The Real Tony Foreman. You can also download this program or any other podcast of Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on the WYPR website. Go to WYPR.org and look for the Foreman Wolf page. And also please email us questions, comments at foremanwolf at wypr.org. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday. Mm-hmm.